Happy Easter, friends. I'm so excited to be with you tonight. I'm so thankful for this Easter season where we remember as a church that Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death. And, and, and because he rose one day too, we shall rise. The, his victory over death is not finished yet. Be careful how you talk about it, especially in a world where people are dying all the time. We're all going to die. His work of, of defeating death finally and thoroughly is not finished until death is thrown into the lake of fire the scriptures talk about. It's lost its sting, but it's still kicking, right? This is a season of hope, and golly, we need a season of hope. Not, not just that the pandemic will go away uh, or that we'll learn to be less socially anxious and know how to talk to people at some point again, but hope that God can bring us victory over death and that it won't have the final word. The resurrection is not a metaphor. It's a fact. And it means we too shall rise. And I pray that gives you hope in all kinds of things in this life. Uh, tonight, I'm excited that I get to preach to you out of my favorite chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Um, I, my very first uh, sermon series that I kind of went to when I was in college through a ministry called The Inn. It's a, a kind of a sister ministry of ours um, in Seattle, Washington. Uh, they were preaching out of the book of Romans. That, uh, that first time. And man, it was so riveting to me. I'd go home like every Tuesday after the worship service and I would read Romans to try to figure out how that friggin' preacher man got those words from this text because this is like an ancient text. And I was looking at like Romans 2 and I'm like, he said some really interesting things that seemed pretty compelling. I don't know how he got him out of here, you know? Um, and that was my first Bible study. It was by myself with like a steno pad and I was taking all these notes of Romans, Romans and stuff. Um, and, and one of the things he suggested, this pastor suggested at one point, his name is Mike Gaffney. Mike said, um, I want to encourage you all to read Romans 8 every day for 30 days. I, I love when somebody kind of throws down a gauntlet like that. Uh, for me, it wasn't like, oh, sweet, I'll grow in my faith. It was, I'm going to do everything this sucker asks to find out how he's getting what he's getting and to find out if you know he's full of it or something. And so I think... Like, I think I was reading Romans 8, kind of hoping uh, that, that, I would, that I would get nothing out of it. And then, then I could sort of move on from Christianity because I did the work, you know, or something. Um, man, I was so scared. Romans 8 changed my life. God changed my life through Romans 8. It's my favorite chapter, y'all. Oh, my gosh. Uh, pray for us all tonight as I preach through Romans 8. Um, let me pray. Uh, I want to give you a little context for Romans 8 and, and, and our sermon series, uh, and then we'll, we'll read the end of it together. We're just going to talk about the end of Romans 8, but I, I guess for a, a little context for our series before we pray, we're preaching um, on, on all these different passages on faith, hope, and love this semester, because in 1 Corinthians 13, which is another favorite, the Apostle Paul excuse me, says that faith, hope, and love are the things that are going to remain. All the gifts, all the, 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 the pomp and circumstance of this cultural moment, all of that will go away. What will remain in, in the universe when all things are done, what will remain as true about Christians when the United States falls and other nations rise and a thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries that long, what still will be true? Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of which is love. 
And we're talking about that as sort of a rousing call to say, what does it look like to be Christians in the world today? What if we were known as people of faith, hope, and love? What if you knew that what God wants for you is faith, hope, and love? There are surely other ways to unpack this and frame that, but that's what we've been doing this semester. Uh, we, 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 a couple weeks ago, talked about um, Jesus summarizing the law as love, that the greatest command is to love God and love others, that, that love covers a multitude of sins, that it's the summary of the law, that without love, everything crumples to the ground. Last week, Josh talked about how God loves us first, because some of us are tempted to believe that God is sort of facing away from us. But if we confess our sins and kind of pull on his coattails and say, I love you, I'm sorry, that he'll turn and love us, that's not true. He loves you first. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with himself. Even when we were dead, God loved us. Matter of fact, we love because he loves Tonight, we're going to talk about how God loves us to the end and nothing can separate us from his love. And next week, we're going to get a little more practical and talk about what it actually means to love. But we are truckloading this with the gracious news of grace, that God, go, God loves us first and loves us to the end, and only in that context does he ask us to love others, right? So we'll talk about that next week, and we'll finish out our semester and our year by talking about a pursuit of love, okay? Um, but we're going to we'll pray. We'll read Romans 8 together. Lord, um, thank you for your great resurrection from the grave and for what that means for the whole of the cosmos and for us. Father, would you send your spirit right now that the words of, of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 8. Uh, right before that, because I want you to see this context, the Apostle Paul uh, has unpacked this, this whole argument that, that we cannot make ourselves right with God it, um, through our own acts of righteousness. Like, like we don't earn God's love or favor. Matter of fact, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That even, even though it is theoretically possible in Paul's mind that somebody could sort of obey all this, nobody has except for Jesus. Nobody does. That we all sin and fall short of the God's glory. And so this efforts to, to earn God's favor and love always end up uh, sort of ending in our own shame and our own guilt and our, and our own uh, sadness and despair. So much so that by the time you get to Romans 7, Paul says, you know, this is so true that I find it to be almost like a law in my life that every time I try to do what's good, I find that evil is just crouching there waiting for me. And every time I try to not do what's, every time I try to abstain from evil, my desires are kind of lifted up and wants to do that. And, and so like, I just keep warring within myself. Do you know what that's like? To have like a battle raging in your mind and your heart for your soul? To want to do good, but also want to do evil? To try to not do evil, but you do it anyway? Do you know what it's like to be defeated in that? The guy who wrote most of the New Testament totally does. His conclusion isn't, therefore, I need to pray. Therefore, I need to go see a therapist. Therefore, I need to go to church. Therefore, I should stop drinking. Therefore, nope. 
his conclusion. He says, who can save me from this wretched man that I am? He says, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. His conclusion is that there's this context that he's in of, of identifying with his own wretchedness an inability to produce justice and justification in his life, this inability to make himself right with God. And he's, he, he has this sober moment sort of looking in the mirror where he's like, what have I done and what am I doing? And, and he, this, is, this is his uh, sort of in that space, here's his next move. <gasps> There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Sitting there in his bathroom looking in the mirror seeing the train wreck of his life and he remembers Jesus. And whatever he looks like, whatever he's done, whatever that battle is, he, he, his, his next step is, oh my God, there's no condemnation for me. Of course he's saying that, like you, you and I would know if we can imagine us in those moments, our own versions of those moments, that when you see the train wreck of your decisions and you see that your inability to earn God's favor and love and, and how we fall short of the glory of God all the time and the war within ourselves, we, what we do to ourselves and what we hear from the messages of the world around us is condemnation. And Paul interrupts that and he says, no, in Christ Jesus there's no condemnation. And, and if the Spirit of God has been given to you, then, 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 um, then live according to the Spirit and know that you have been made sons and daughters of the God Most High, so much so that you share in the inheritance of Jesus, and that, that you will find out that the sufferings of the present world are not worth comparing to the glory that will be, will be revealed in you. Not just you, friends, the whole creation, like the freaking trees and the mountains and the, the dogs and the cats and the streams and the fields and the stars and the heavens are all waiting for you and I to be revealed as to, in, in terms of, or, or as we really are in Christ. Paul knows this is hard stuff. And so he says, the Spirit is going to be with you in your weakness, even praying alongside of you. And, and, and God has been up to this work from the beginning when you were a thought in His mind. And He is at work every step of the way to bring it to completion to such a degree that we are actually more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You see, in, in chapter 7 at the very end, Paul felt like, like such a victim even to himself. Who can save me? And here he says we're actually more than conquerors. Do you see that tremendous difference in posture and in, and in fact? And what we're going to read in just a second is this idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I want you to notice something that you... I want to tell you something that you probably can't notice in English, okay? That from chapters, end of chapter 7 all the way to the end of 8, this, this Paul has this moment where he's torn apart in his own battles with sin. And in this space, he cries out for help. And from that moment until the end of chapter 8, there's not a single imperative. There's not a single command. There's not a single do this. Now, there are a ton of commands that God gives us. There are summary commands like love that God gives us. Jesus says over and over again, if you love me, obey me. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says go, which is a command. Make disciples, which is a command. Teach people to obey him, which is a command. And baptize, which is a command. 
Okay, the commands are everywhere. Uh, submitting to Jesus as Lord and following him will come with obedience, for sure. Rhetorically, Paul is trying to lift up as high as he can the fact that this is all grace. It is all a free gift, which is what grace means. Who will save me to a total security of God's love? Not a single command. It's magisterial, friends. Romans 8 is a baller chapter, and I commend it to you. Read it every day for 30 days and see what happens, okay? Um, we're just going to read the end of chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 31. The Apostle Paul says this. If you've got a Bible, open it up. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? I want to pause. I'm going to pause a couple times through this, um, and especially if you're reading it every day for 30 days, uh, you'll have time to figure all this out. Um, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? This is a little aside, but how gracious and how smart and wise is it for Paul to use the word if? Because how much damage is caused by people saying, God is for me, nobody's against me. And so I don't listen to wisdom, I don't listen to the culture, I don't listen to people push against me. Uh, I already said that. I don't listen to the, 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 the folks closest to me warning me. How many nations and, and leaders have sinned and committed atrocities that are hard to fathom because they have believed God is with them in their fight? How many people are heartbroken because their ex had a, uh, said God is with them in this sort of breakup, you know? <laughs> um, and so let me just, there's, the word if there is really interesting. God, he doesn't just say God is for you, who can be against you. He kind of flexes that way in a minute. But, but I want to pause on this just, just because this is an important note of humility that will save so much heartache and injustice in the world. God is for you. That doesn't mean he's for all the things you do. God is for you. It doesn't mean he's for the things that you say. God is for you. That doesn't mean he's for the things you're for. You probably should put an if there and ask some questions about that before you make that assumption, okay? But if God is for you, Paul says, who can stand against you? If God uh, is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? If, friends, there's nothing that matters more to the Father than the Son. Nothing. And if the Father gives us the Son, why do you think he won't give you the other things? Like, do you see what I'm getting at? There's theological things here that are so mysterious and hard to fathom. It's important to note at this moment that, that Jesus, his agency was fully intact and he, he, was, he was willing, he was not coerced to go to the cross. Uh, he actually, even on his way to the cross, the very night that he was being on, was on trial, he even told his disciples, I could just ask the Father to send a bunch of angels and like take care of all of this. He, he's, he fully knows what he's doing. The point here, Paul says, is, so you're worried about God um, taking care of you or, uh, or, or giving you the things that your heart would delight in? Why, if he gave you his son, do you think he's going to withhold anything else? He's given you what matters to him most. He's not going to withhold other things, that's what Paul says. 
Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Look at all the things God does, not the things you do and I do. Why do you have right standing with God? Because God himself has given us right standing with himself. It's like the words are hard even to say in, in like a coherent sentence because Paul is so much, like he's, he's lifting up grace and God's work so high. Verse 34, who then will condemn us? No one will condemn us. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is seated in a place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. How many times can Paul say for us in one sentence? Be careful with the rhetoric here because of course people will accuse Christians. Of course people will condemn Christians. Paul is saying in the end, the answer is no one because when the people who are accusing are standing before the Lord Most High, do you know whose voice is going to win out? So Paul's, Paul has this eternal perspective. Regardless of what you're experiencing now, God is for you. No one's going to stand against you. Verse 35. He asked the question, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Anything? He brings up some things here that we might think do. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? When you face hardship, friends, are you tempted to think maybe God doesn't love me? Does it mean he doesn't love me when I'm in trouble, when, I, when, I, when I'm facing just tremendous hardships or when I'm persecuted or, or hungry and destitute, like when I don't have the provisions that I, I, that I want, when I'm poor, when I don't know where I'm getting my next anything from, whatever it is, when I have a poverty of, of, of food or, or money or clothing or, or, or intimacy or faith, when I'm destitute, I think that means God doesn't love us. Doesn't love me. When I'm in danger, when I'm threatened with death, do I think that when these things happen, that means God doesn't love me? Paul's illustrating these questions because these are things that do actually happen in our lives, right? We have trouble and calamity. We go hungry. We, are, we, have, we face dangers. We're th- some of us, maybe not many of us listening to something on YouTube, but throughout the world, people are threatened with death all the time. Does it, what does it mean? Paul quotes from Psalm 44 here. He says, as the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. It's a strange quote. I've never heard anybody else quote this, right? Psalm 44, uh, I encourage you to check it out. Um, the people of God... Uh, start in Psalm 44 and they say, God, we, we've heard the stories of you saving your people. We've heard the miraculous tales of what you can do and who you're like. So why are we suffering? If you are who you say you are and, and you are all that we have heard about, why are we being slaughtered like sheep? Wake up, God. Rise up, and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Paul quotes Psalm 44 to do a number of things. Number one, to, to help the people who are reading this letter in Rome right then to know that, that these kinds of questions have been asked by God's people for more than a thousand years at that point. 
And he knows that, that the good Jewish men and women among them will know how that psalm ends. That even in the midst of their persecution, they cry out to God to rise up because they know that this suffering is so hard that it's making them doubt and question, but they know that God actually does love them. So why are you sleeping, God? Do you know that's an okay thing to pray? Do you know that it's in your Bible and it's okay for you to go to God and say, God, why do you seem like you're asleep? Why am I suffering? Will you rise up and help, please? I wonder actually how much, how much God is waiting for us to cry out for these things. Paul says, Does, do these things mean that God doesn't love us? Verse 37, he says, no. Despite all these things, in the face of all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life can separate us from God's love. Not, 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 not my, the fact that I will die or, or dying young. Not living a long life and having many chances to screw it up. I was more worried about that in my 20s. I remember sort of just starting to follow Jesus and freaking out because I knew I could screw all this up, you know? Like, like I, my temptations were loud and I was like, Lord, if this is on me, I'm going to screw this up. And, and, and being reminded that God finishes what he starts and that, that he will carry me through to the end and that nothing can separate me from his love. I went, if that's true, then maybe I can do this. Because if it's on me, I don't know if I can do this, you know? Neither angels nor demons. No spiritual warfare, right? Uh, if so, Some of you never think about this, uh, probably to your detriment. And some of you think about this a lot, probably to your detriment. Um, but the forces of evil that are at work, the personal forces of evil that are at work to lie, steal, and destroy, to accuse you, they can't separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. The things that you're afraid of, even if they come to pass, cannot separate you from God's love, but neither can your fear itself separate you from God's love. Maybe you're anxious. A lot of people are today. Even, even in the midst of a culture where we experience more safety and security than any cultures who have ever lived in the history of the world, we experience a ton of anxiety. The manifestation of your fears or even your fear itself cannot separate you from the love of God. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love, just in case you need Paul to make that point clear. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, nothing in the heavens, nothing on earth. Paul is trying to say in, in poetic language, nothing, it, it, nothing as far east or as far west, as high above or as, or as deep as below, nothing in all of God's creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me say that again. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, what do you think can separate you from the love of God? What 
What do you think risks that? Do you think um, the fact that you haven't made a profession of faith or the fact that you harbor doubts or you know, maybe you per- you're a perpetrator in, in a way that you, you, you understand is really grievous to God's heart. And it might actually be really grievous to God's heart. I don't know. I mean, I do know if, if you tell me, I can tell you probably if it's grievous to God's heart. But, um, but you might think maybe that keeps you from the love of God. Or, or maybe, you th- maybe you've been victimized. That the trouble and, 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 and uh, hardship and even the threat of death or danger has come upon you in a way that you think this must mean that God has been, I've been separated from the love of God. Maybe you just can't get it right. You keep screwing up over and over and over and over and over again in the same way. You think God's going to get sick and tired of you. The reason why you think that is because that's how you and I behave. That's not how God behaves. And we keep fashioning God into our image. Because I get irritable, I think God might be irritable. What if it's true, and it is, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that has been revealed in Christ Jesus? In other words, it's not even hidden. It's been shown. When I, every single one of you, is loved by God, That's been revealed, and I better get in line. Nothing you do or don't do can separate you from that. I I realize that, that your love for God might be in question. I realize that. What we're talking about is God's love for you, and nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing. Whatever you might even be remotely thinking about your dullness, your smartness, your cynicism, your, 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 the fact that you're gullible, your sin temptations, the things that are hard for you to get in line with, your stubbornness, your lack of it, your apathy. God loves you, friend. That's a fact, and there's nothing you can do about that. Nothing. Here's where things get really interesting. If we're to be like Jesus, which is what it means to be a disciple, it means to be a student who's becoming like the master, right? Like Christians as disciples are not supposed to just agree with Jesus. That's just an incidental thing that happens on the way. We are to become like him. Well, if one of the things that is like Christ is his um, unconditional love, don't you know that as we grow in Christ's likeness that we too become more and more people who have unconditional love and who are marked by that? That as I continue to follow Jesus, what I, what I, what I start to find is, is increasingly there's nothing you can do to make me not love you. <laughs> you know, uh, sins against me or, 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 or things that irritate me or whatever. What does it look like for me to become somebody that is, this is where it would be really interesting, is if the people around me would begin to say, man, I don't think there's anything I can do to make Jason not love me. Don't you know that that's one of the ways Christ is trying to equip and build you up and send you out into the world? But I don't want to get too much into what we're called to do today. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that next week. Because I know that things are vying for our souls and for our hearts and for our minds and we all are spinning our wheels trying to figure out how to make ourselves right with God and with the world. And what if that is effort that you don't need to spend? What if God already loves you thoroughly and, I mean, to the bottom and you can't 
get out of it. What would you do differently if you didn't have to convince God to love you or prove to yourself that you're lovable? What if you already knew you were? How might your life look different? God does love you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Him. None. Even your own condemnations and your own accusations won't stand. And nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing. This Easter, what would it look like if we as a people of God began to live into that reality? We began to relax knowing that even in the midst of our own warring internally, we could remember the truth that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus, that nothing can separate us from His love, and one day we will rise from the grave to have the light of that reality fully on display. If you're watching this with somebody or listening to this with somebody, we take just a minute, like the Apostle Paul, and ask a question to create a little space. Will you ask... um, What tempts you to believe that you can actually be separated from God's love? Like what tempts you to believe you could lose it, you know? Honestly. Uh, and, And make a little space for that question there. And in the midst of that, listen to each other, hear each other. In the midst of that, finish your time by by praying, proclaiming the truth that Jesus, there's no condemnation because we're in you. And thank you, God, that nothing can separate us from your love. And when you you pray that over each other, so tired of conditional love. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, in whom we have it. And we can never lose it. May we be a people who stand firm on that and begin to offer that to others too especially this Easter. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you, friends, and happy Easter.